Jesus saves people. This is what he does, and this is the truth about him to which we become witnesses as his church. But I wonder if we ever stop to ponder just how well Jesus does his job as a Savior, how utterly perfect his salvation is, his saving ability, his power. That's the point Mark is driving home in our text this morning as Jesus performs the second of three miracles in Gentile territory in this section of Mark. Theologically speaking, this passage builds on the one just before it, which was meant to show that God's great salvation that comes to us in His Son will indeed spread everywhere, even to the unclean Gentiles. And so this miracle that we're going to read about this morning is unique to Mark's Gospel. None of the other Gospel writers include it. Mark's audience, we need to remember, was a predominantly Gentile one. That he wanted to assure the fact that not only was Jesus the Son of God, but He was their Savior and their Lord. Jesus is the fulfillment of the words of the Old Testament. Prophets' promises of full and final salvation. This is what Jesus is proving in these or through these mighty works. The promise of the end time restoration of strength to the lame, of sight to the blind, of hearing to the deaf, and of speech to the mute. And so in fulfillment of the promise of Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Jesus continued to demonstrate his messianic authority in Gentile territories, this time by healing a deaf man who is mute in the Decapolis. Beloved, Jesus Christ lacks nothing in his ability or in his desire to be our Savior. Everything that he did was for the purpose of proclaiming this to us, making sure that we believed this about him to all who would listen to all who long to be saved as our great savior our lord jesus does everything well so let me pray and we'll begin father i thank you for your word this morning god hold me up as i proclaim it lord if you would be with me by the power and anointing of your holy spirit lord come and abide with me and over me Lord, over my mind and my mouth in these moments that you might be glorified and your word would go out in truth. Father, I ask that you would be Lord over everyone listening, that you would enable us to hear, to understand, and to believe by grace through faith all the truth of your word concerning your Son. We ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We read verses 31 through 37 of Mark chapter 7. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So it seems Jesus left Tyre, traveled what would have been about 22 miles north to Sidon, but then he turned east and eventually south. So he's moving in this huge arc back down to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and the Decapolis. It's about a 120-mile journey in all. The Decapolis is that region, the ten cities, 
where he had previously healed the man with a legion of demons in him. Taking this very roundabout way, it seems, um, to his normal area of ministry does conjure up images of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. But Mark doesn't tell us why Jesus took this route or what happened to them as they traveled. I guess we'll have to take John at his word in his gospel when he told us that if the gospel writers were to tell us everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books to contain it. But when Jesus gets back to the region of the Sea of Galilee, there's a, a group of people who bring a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him in verse 32. Mark's word for speech impediment in the Greek was mogilalos, which meant he had a severe difficulty in speaking such that people could not even understand the words he was saying. So we know what to make of this. Either he had been born deaf never developed the ability to speak properly because, of course, he wouldn't have had access to speech pathologists or anything like this. Or at one time he could speak, but he'd become deaf at probably an early age so that his speech patterns never developed properly. All we know for sure is that he couldn't hear, and when he tried to speak, he could not be understood. Why is Mark, this is an amazing miracle, why is Mark the only gospel writer that includes the story of this particular healing? I think we may understand... Um, Mark's meaning here is purpose when we consider that word he used for the man's speech impediment, mogilalos. This word is found only twice in the entire Bible. Here, and it appears in Isaiah 35, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. In the chapters leading up to Isaiah 35, Isaiah had been giving oracles of doom from God to pronounce on Israel and her neighbors. He told the Israelites that God's judgment was going to lay their land waste and they were going to face a period of horrible desolation. Listen to how severe this was going to be in Isaiah 34, 8 through 10. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch, tar. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Now, who will own this desolate land? Who will dwell in it? Isaiah tells us that in Isaiah 34, 11 through 15. He says, but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. It's nobles. There is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And the wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. This is a very graphic description of God's judgment on a land. It would be so severe... So horrible that God was going to take the land away from the prince and give it to the jackals and the snakes and the birds. They would dwell in it. This is really the climax of a, an increasing litany of judgment in Isaiah that had gone on for several chapters as God just lays out the destruction he's planned for this part of the world. But normally, almost always, when God gives a pronouncement of judgment to his people... He also gives a word of future hope, again, almost every time, because he will not abandon his remnant to desolation along with the unbelieving. 
And sure enough, we hear this word immediately after Isaiah announces the day of the Lord, the day of his visitation of the destruction he would bring to this land. In Isaiah 35, 1 to 2, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So Isaiah moves from desolation to glory, from destruction to the beauty of the manifestation of God. And then we read these beautiful words in Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So the text is reiterating there what the Old Testament said so often that what Jesus had made reference to back in verse 27 here in Mark 7, that once again salvation is of the Jews, for God is working through this stiff-necked people to bring His salvation to all the nations, to the whole world. And here's the climax of this beautiful text in verses 5 through 8 of Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes and the highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. And it's right here in Mark 7, in chapter 6, when we read... And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I'm sorry, this is still in Isaiah 35. The tongue of the mute sing for joy. It's there in Isaiah 35, 6 that we find the other occurrence in Scripture of the Greek word mogilalo. So hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God had given this message of hope to his people that after destruction and desolation would come the age of the Messiah when the kingdom of God would break into the world and the anointed one would come And God promised that as a part of that, you would know that was here when the Messiah would give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and give speech to the tongue of the mute. This is the connection Mark is making in this text with his choice of words that the era of salvation and restoration has dawned in the miracles of Jesus, even to the Gentiles. And so the people that brought this man, Jesus, honors their request In verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Now again, this man is from the region of the Decapolis, which was a region uh, dominated mainly by Gentiles. So he's just like the Syrophoenician woman in that he's not a Jew. These are the people, again, that the Jews deem to be unclean. So of course, the first thing Jesus does is show compassion, take the man aside, And touch him. This is immediately what he does. He puts his hands on the man's ears. Then he spat into his own hands, dabbed the spittle on the man's tongue. Spit was classified as an unclean emission in the Jewish laws for purification. But for the Gentiles in this region, there was a tradition that those, you know, that there were people that had healing powers. And sometimes uh, they could use spit or would use spit, which I wouldn't appreciate. But they could use it as a medium to transfer power to people they... We're trying to heal. We know Jesus can heal. 
We know Jesus can heal with a word. We know that Jesus can heal from a distance. So the healing doesn't require his touch or his spit. So he may have simply done it this way to assure the Gentile man that he had power to heal, although that would have been obvious in just a moment. But it's more likely that Jesus is again still teaching his disciples. I think this is what, as we get into chapter 8 and following in the next week or so, I think he's proving that as the Messiah sent from God, he is the fulfillment of these promises. He is the fulfillment of purity laws. And therefore, he's not going to be defiled by that which is unclean. But this also foreshadows the outpouring of his blood. Everything about Jesus is holy. The blood that will not only heal the bodies of people, but save them altogether for eternity. So he touched the man's ears, touched his tongue. And we read in verse 34, And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. When Mark tells us that Jesus sighed, he's telling us that Jesus is in a posture of heartfelt prayer for this man's healing. He's appealing to the Father. That word sighed, this is the same noun form of the same root that Paul will use in Romans 8.26 to describe how the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs and groans that cannot be uttered. It's the same word. Jesus spoke to him in Aramaic, Ephatha. He tells you, be open. Mark translates that for his Greek-speaking readers. And the word of Jesus sets this man free, heals him completely. Notice that immediately he can hear, and he began to speak plainly. So by giving the man hearing and a voice, Jesus is acting with the authority of God, who in Exodus 4.11 is the one who makes men hearing or mute or seeing or blind, right? Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So as he often did, Jesus commanded the man in the group that had brought him not to speak about the miracle, but they couldn't listen. I think among the Gentiles here, you're seeing much of the same thing that we saw in the story of the Syro-Phoenician woman, that in their disobedience, so to speak, they're doing something that not even Israel is doing. They were dumbfounded at what Jesus had done. They, They couldn't stop zealously proclaiming it, but listen to their assessment the Gentile assessment of Jesus and his work in verse 37. He has done all things well. Jesus never did anything poorly in his entire life. To the point that when he set his face to go to Jerusalem in John chapter 4, where he would be crucified and determined that his food would be obedience to the will of his Father, he did it well. No failure, no blemish in his work. Everything Jesus ever made or did or performed or said was perfect. God himself speaks this way of Jesus in Matthew 3.17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He does all things well. Beloved, our lives here on earth under the sun will be filled with trials and temptations. Our faith will falter in the midst of our struggles. Our wills will often wilt under the power of temptations to sin. But be at peace. 
our Savior does all things well. Your God is the one who was manifested in Jesus when he healed this man on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Your God is the one who created the heavens and the earth and when he was finished, looked at all of it and called it very good. What he does, he does well. And one of the things he does is redeem us. Beloved, there's not an ounce of deficiency in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. Not an ounce. As our great Savior, our Lord Jesus does everything well. So when he was saving us, or when he saves us, when we are born again, it's not like he did that and then he turns over the completion or realization of that salvation to you and I as it transfers from the power of his hands to the power of our hands and our will. The same Savior that began that work in us will carry it through to completion in Philippians 1.6. Can he do that? Is he good at that? He does all things well. He saves us well. Once we are in his hands, we will not be let go. The foundation of our salvation is not our ability working in tandem with our will to do our best to hang on to him. The foundation of our salvation is the blood and righteousness and the will and the promise of God for me, realized and kept on my behalf in his son, Jesus Christ. Tony, my sin is habitual. And it's so unclean, and no matter how hard I pray or how hard I try, I can't get rid of it. Tony, I know the Bible says God does all things well, but my wife has cancer. I know God does all things well, but my grandma got a bed sore. And it was infected, and she died. I know God does all things well, but my son was born with Down syndrome. My daughter's autistic and nonverbal, and now our whole lives are changed. I know you say God does all things well, but I'm so depressed most of the time, I feel like I could kill myself. Beloved. Jesus is holding you. Jesus is holding you. Be at peace. He does all things well. There are no mistakes. That's not what has happened to you. There are no mistakes. There are no missed responsibilities on God's part. He didn't miss anything. That's not why you're struggling. There's no forgetfulness. There's not even any sleeping. There's no apathy on God's part. That is not why we suffer. Those are not the reasons we go through difficulties. Yes, we may do things that merit certain consequences. Absolutely. And so sometimes we're living in the fruit of what we did and the choices that we made. Sure. But generally speaking, our struggling, our difficulties, even our ongoing struggle with sin, that's all that matters. Whether or not it's a struggle, right? None of our ongoing struggle with sin is not evidence of his absence. It's proof that his Holy Spirit is not going to leave us to our own abilities to overcome it. It's proof that we've been brought to life. And so now when we sin, our fle- we can't stomach it anymore. Life can't stomach death. 
He's holding you. He's holding you. You believers struggling now under the weight of trial that's so heavy and significant, you can't see the presence of God, let alone feel or believe in His goodness. He is holding you. He hasn't forgotten about you. That's not what is happening. He hasn't cast you aside. He isn't punishing you. Never forget this in your thinking about God. All the wrath He had towards you has been poured out on Jesus and taken away. Because he fulfilled that. He took that in your place. So when God chastens us, it's not as a stranger, it's as a son. He's not throwing you out of the family. He hasn't forgotten about you. That's not what is happening to you. He hasn't cast you aside. He isn't punishing you. He's holding you up so that even in your tears and your pain, you would know that you're not forsaken. My point is this, God knows what He is doing. Trust Him. And I know it's easier said than done. I don't dispute that for a second. And the harder your trial, the more significant your struggle, the more important that is for you to know, to believe, even if you can't get your head around it. His hands are around it. Right? He, he, this, that's not who He is to you. He's, he's not just throwing things in your path. To see if you can handle it, right? People always want to help, right? I don't, not putting that down at all, but we should listen to Solomon that where words increase, sin increases, and sometimes find the value in just being present with people. We don't always have to try to give advice. I heard somebody say one time to a mom who was born with a child with severe disabilities, and I hear this a lot, not just this story, but this one sticks out in my mind. And Well, you know, God gives His toughest battles to His toughest soldiers. If He didn't know that you could deal with it, He wouldn't have brought it your way. And she said, why me? Right? I mean, how does that comfort you? Do you think that your refuge will come in knowing how tough God thinks you are? I don't want God to think I'm tough. No way. I don't want God to think I'm tough. I want God to think that I need His Son. That's what I need. And praise God, that's how He is. But it, it, what we go through is no joke. And there, there are people in our church right now going through things that they don't know what to do. They, they don't know what the road ahead has for them. They, we need more than platitudes, beloved. We need to know that he does all things well. He, and he's, he's at, the scripture is clear that he's at work in my life. He's, he's, it's, my suffering is not in a vacuum. In fact, Paul would say, this is an amazing passage. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4 that my struggles and trials and the things I go through in the flesh are, are, are not, they're, they're working for me. They're working for my benefit. Now again, It's not that we have to to look at our trials and smile and be happy about them. We can count it all joy when we face various trials and temptations, not because trials and temptations are insignificant or easy, but because he's with us, because they don't mean he's turned his back on me. And I, I don't know of a truth that holds us together more than just knowing. I don't understand what I'm going through, but I know it's not that God has turned his back on me. It's not that. It's not that I've been forsaken or forgotten. He knows what He's doing. Just trust Him. 
And again, it's easier said than done, but beloved, trust Him. He knows what He's doing. He doesn't miss anything. Nothing is a mistake. Nothing. Just trust Him. And beloved, know this. Don't forget this. It will pass. Here or there. But it will pass. What you are suffering will not remain forever. It will not. Don't think He can't hold you through this. When you watch Him do things like this, this is for you. He can unstop deaf ears. He can give speech to the mute. He knows your name. He knows your name. He knows you exist. He knows when you rise up and when you lie down. And you believers who struggle with sin doesn't get better, but you feel like it gets worse and it gets harder over the years. Listen, Jesus is holding you. The blood He shed does not lose its quality over time, nor does it lose its quality the more that you and I need it. Right? It, it doesn't run out. It doesn't fail or expire in its sufficiency. Trampling on the blood of Jesus is not needing it more. Trampling on the blood of Jesus is thinking and believing that it won't cover your sins. That's trampling on the blood of Jesus. That's how you dishonor it. Not when you need it. My goodness, Jesus didn't die for clean people. He didn't die for people that at some point wouldn't need what He required anymore. It's, it's not like an excuse, well then, great, I'll just go on sinning. It's, it's not that. It, it, Paul writes in Romans like, look, you're going to go on sinning. You're, you're going to end up at points in your life saying, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul himself observed this as a believer in Romans 7. I have a desire in me to do the law of God and honor it. That's not an unbeliever talking. But I don't have the ability to carry it out. That's Paul talking. Don't be surprised when that's you. That you have this desire to please God, which is in every believer. And you don't have the ability to carry it out. Don't then, don't then make your own standards and markers so that you can carry it out. Right? Don't change the law. Don't change the scriptures. Don't move the goalposts and then say, I've figured it out. I've, I've found the ability to be righteous enough for God to accept me. That ability was purchased for you 2,000 years ago. Your money is not needed. In fact, it's dishonorable to the person who did pay the bill. Right? Go back to the restaurant all the time. Try that at the restaurant. Try to pay the bill once it's been paid. Right? You gotta watch, I mean, your server might say, I might take it as a tip and let you do it, but just try to pay for something once it's been paid for. Jesus has you. Struggling believer in sin, Jesus has you. Keep pressing in. Keep believing. Don't abandon the Savior who's not going to abandon you. There's no need for that. There's no need for that. Jesus does not count our salvation as cheap. He's not going away. He's not going to throw us away when what He bought for us becomes apparent to us finally how badly we needed it. He knew that all along. We're surprised at our depravity. Jesus knowingly died for it. 
We're surprised at our inability. Jesus knowingly died for it. That's why he hung until he died. So that he would cover your entire life up to the very moment of your death. I said yesterday to my family, my grandma was the most wonderful woman I ever knew. She had a faith that surpassed every preacher I've ever known. There was nobody like her. But when she breathed her last breath here, and her soul awoke in the presence of God, it wasn't because she was a good woman. It wasn't because she was loyal and faithful and kind and gentle. It wasn't because of that. She is there for the same reason you and I will be there when we'll be there. Because Jesus died for us and rose for us and ascended for us and is praying for us. And when we can't remember Him, remembers us. He does all things well. Again, we're surprised at our sinfulness. He is not. Don't forget that. When you do something say, I can't believe I did that. Jesus says, I died because I knew you'd do that. He's a refuge, beloved. That's who he is. He's a refuge. A refuge. We're surprised at how much grace it's apparently going to take for us to get home. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He's the one who died for our sin and rose again three days later so that you would know, oh, God is satisfied with him. I'll be, I'll rest in him. He does our salvation well. He does it perfectly to be exact. Jesus obeys well. He lives well. He dies well. He rises well. He cares well. He loves well. He remembers well. He keeps his word well. He does all things well. So to those of you who don't know him as your savior, who don't call on him as savior just yet, listen, do it now. Do it now. You don't have to wait for the summons to come. Just call out to him. He responds to that. He's a savior. The gospel is Jesus for you. Right? It's, it's God telling you that in His Son, He is for you, believer. He is for you, unbeliever that is ready to come to Him. He is for you. And if God is for us, if the one who does everything well is for us, who can be against us? And what difference would it make? Right? So you bring all your mess. You bring it. Jesus will bring the bread and the wine. And he also throws parties well. Beloved. What he does well includes saving the one that believes he or she is too far away. Jesus does all things well and that includes reigning as king over the entire cosmos. Marvel at Him this morning. Marvel at Him, believer. He is yours. Marvel at Him, unbeliever, that will come to Him, for He is yours. For I am sure, I am sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
you see what Paul, he's building word upon word to make sure it's clear. He uses spectrum words when he's talking about the love of God for you. Life, death, height, depth, right? Angels, rulers, things present, things to come. He's trying to encompass everything. And just when you're reading that beautiful text in Romans 8 and you get worried and you think, well, he didn't mention my thing. When he's talking about what would separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, he doesn't get specific enough for me to find my hope there. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, if He loves you, He loves you. And nothing... You say... You, you realize what Paul just did? Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that entail? Cancer. Right. Early death. Disease. Poverty. Food stamps. Unfulfilled dreams, broken expectations, my sinfulness, my struggle, my gossip, the iniquity in my heart, the things I watch that infect me, the things I hear that infect me, the decisions I make that throw my life off the rails. I don't want to do those things, right? You understand that. But we do those things. So we need a Savior that doesn't just save the front we put up. We need a Savior that saves what we hide. We need a Savior good enough for what other people don't know about us. And beloved, praise God because He does all things well. All right? All of it. Everything. Everything. Everything.